organize your amazing ideas into a powerful book, you are in the right place. At the right time to learn how to write your book. Hi, I'm Joyce Glass. And I'm Sherry Lynn Bisbano, and welcome to The Right Hour, nonfiction tips from The Right Coach team. We are so glad you joined us today. Welcome to episode 1101 of The Right Hour. I'm so glad you've joined us today. We're so excited about this season. Story is what motivates people to change or improve their lives. This season is all about the power of your story. And today, Rob Bonick reveals the three key components of a powerful story. You are going to love hearing his story. We take a few rabbit trails regarding current events, but I know you will enjoy the journey with us. Through his adversity, Robert Ian Bonick, also known as Rob, has been able to face life's challenges through choice. He has created incredible life for himself and now shares his passion to enable self-reflection and awareness. He's an engaging speaker, inspiring leaders, staff, and individuals to feel empowered. He has danced for M People, Womack and Womack, recruited for Madonna, and modeled alongside Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, and Eva Herzegova. May have got that wrong. Don't know. He has also traveled the globe, living in destinations such as London, Sydney, and Milan. And as the main promoter for Australia's most iconic venues and parties, it would be easy to dismiss Rob as one of the lucky few who has rubbed shoulders with the rich and famous. In reality, luck has had nothing to do with Rob's success. Growing up in an orphanage between the ages of 2 and 18, Rob did not get a running start in the game of life. In addition to the initial challenges of not having a family, Rob was faced with a choice. Would he choose to reflect and follow the path of fellow orphans who ended up in jail or dead, or instead choose to step into his greatest potential as a human being? Rob is deeply passionate about providing people with the tools to enable self-reflection and awareness. After all, the reflection of ourselves we hide from is more than often than not the fuel igniting our greatest potential as human beings. Despite the scars of troubled youth, Rob has used his pain to embrace purpose and today is a passionate advocate for youth at risk, overcoming adversity and standing united in diversity. After all, it's not the life circumstances that we define who we become, but the wise words of the man in the mirror. Now, don't let Rob's bio intimidate you at all. He is down-to-earth and fabulous, and you are going to enjoy listening to his story as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. And definitely get to connect with him on Facebook and learn more about him. And you're going to hear more about his book that he's written called Soul Survivor. We're going to talk about that in the interview as well. So enjoy, and we'll see you next time. All right. Well, welcome back to The Right Hour. This is season 11, and I'm so excited to have our guest today. It's Rob Bonick, and he has an interesting story. And this season, we're talking about the power of story. So, Rob, glad you're here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on the show. You're welcome. And if you didn't notice, 
Um, he's got a little bit of an accent. So where <laughs> are you originally from? <laughs> yeah. So originally I was born in London. and um, But then, you know, it's one of those things where if you travel a bit and then you move around a bit, you know, I lived in Italy for a while. I lived in in Australia um, for even longer. And by the way, Australians do not speak English. They speak Australian. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, you know. Anyway, uh, and then when we moved to Bali, so that's where I'm calling you from now. So we're talking from now in Bali. So my accent is originally from London, but it's been mixed with a whole bunch of different accents in there. So it really depends who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to guys from, from home, then it comes on very much that type of accent. If I'm talking to other people, it kind of moves and changes along, probably along along with the seasons. <laughs> So yeah, so long as you so long as you can understand me, it's good. <laughs> exactly. Although it's like I, I've said to a lot of other people before, I can tell we we live in the south and of the US, and my husband has can have a very southern accent, and people say that I have a southern accent, but it's depends on who I'm talking to. It can be a little more southern, and the more tired I get, the more twangy I get. Yeah. But my husband has a friend who is from. Um, Vidalia, Georgia, if anybody knows where that's at, the Vidalia onions are very popular in the U.S. Um, but whenever he gets on the phone and he answers the phone, he starts talking to him. I know exactly who he's talking to because immediately his accent changes. It's wow. all of a sudden, it's more country, more twangy, <laughs> more southern, you know. And I'm like, he's talking to Joe. I can tell he's talking to Joe. <laughs> so wow. I get it when you talk to different people, you do kind of, pick up or, or carry on a little different than um, with some other people. So that's interesting. Well, tell us a little bit about you and your story and what led you to write your book. He wrote a book called Soul Survivor. And what is the subtitle again? Yeah, so Soul, Soul Survivor, How an Abandoned Child Went from Nothing to Everything. Yeah, oh, cool. published by New Holland. Yeah, yeah. So look, like, um, so a little bit about me. Um, so I was born in London, uh, as I think I told you before, and uh, I had a different upbringing to most. So uh, my parents came from Jamaica, so so I've got a Jamaican background as well. And um, interestingly enough, actually, I found out recently that my uh, Jamaican side of my family, people like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, they're all Jamaican maroons. So, so my family is steeped in a bit of, uh, in a, in a bit of, bit of history. So, so anyway, but I was born in London and, um, my parents had a kind of a fatal attraction. So I didn't grow up at home. My older brother, my older sister and myself. Now, my older brother was fostered to, to, uh, in a, to a foster home in London. So foster home is like a short stay, um, kind of children's home as such. And then they try and find you a family to go and live with. So that was my elder brother. So we never really had much contact. Whereas my, my elder sister and I were much closer in age. And what happened with us is that, um, is that we lived in two children's homes. For me, from the age of six months to the age of 18 years, well, 17 and a half years to be precise. And that was in London. So, so my life what was that, you know, we, we grew up, I grew up in this children's home. So children's home is a place. It's not like a boarding school. It's literally like a home that you live in with uh, parents which are called members of staff. So they're like surrogate parents, right? 
And in this children's home lived 18 different kids, all different ages. But the idea was is that whichever age you came in, you would leave at 18. So 18, you become an adult and you leave. So you kind of move, moved out and it's like, you're on your own, right? And, and, and you basically move out. So for me, because I was there very early from six months to 17 and a half, 18, I saw a lot of kids come in who were maybe five or 10 or 12 and they would come in, stay for four or five years and they would leave. So I saw tens, maybe hundreds of kids coming in. So, so my life wasn't really um, destined for greatness. You could say that, right? Um, most kids right. in children's homes, they're from broken homes, right? So they don't, they're not that stable and they end up usually in trouble with the police or sometimes dead or just put people in society that don't necessarily go out and create some very positive impacts. So, but what happened for, for me is that um, I managed to somehow put some, some understanding, some learning, some lessons together. And I ended up um, probably playing basketball for my country. So I played basketball at an elite level. And that was the first time that I think I saw that if I put my mind to something, there's, there's more than I could do than what my surroundings could offer. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so basketball from the country was the first thing. But then after that, it was like, well, what else can I do? And then so, so to cut a long story short, um, what, what I ended up doing is that I ended up, you know, doing things like I worked for, I worked with Madonna for, for a period. I became a model and I worked with the supermodels. That's like Evangelista, Naomi Campbell, all these famous supermodels. Um, you know, I moved, um, you know, I, I had a business voted number three. In, in, the, in, in the world, in Australia, uh, a club. Um, then I traveled to different countries. I uh, have a family of my own with two kids, which was never part of the plan. And, uh, and what else? There's a few other bucket list type items in there as well. But it's just that, you know, I really saw that, that again, you know, the only thing that limits me are the thoughts in my head. The only thing that limits me is that glass ceiling that I put on myself which is saying you can only achieve so much, right? And then I became an inspirational speaker and a coach. Uh, and, and then what led to the book was um, my message has always been, you know, it's not where you start in life, but where you're going that's important and what you learn about yourself along the way. And, uh, and the book, Soul Survivor, How an Abandoned Child Goes From Nothing to Everything, is basically you know, a journey um, which is representing that, right? It's representing the fact that I didn't get the best start for what most call the best start in life. I actually think that it was the greatest start I could have got. Um, but, but, you know, and then, then I focused on where I was going, right? Who I was in the process, but where I was going. And, uh, and, and taking that on board, um, the book was born, which is an extension of, the, of a keynote that I was doing called Man in the Mirror. And the Man in the Mirror, a little bit like Michael Jackson, but Man in the Mirror is, is really about, the, you know, like the change starts with you. Everything starts with the man or the woman in the mirror, the one you see every day when you're brushing your teeth or when you're washing your face or when you're looking at putting on makeup. You know, everything starts from there. And if you can, if you can make that journey, that, that move inside, the outside will change accordingly. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Well, what got you to to basketball was that before you left the children's home or, or after you left the children's home what 
what made that transition to get you to the point of saying, Hey, if I put my mind to this, I can really do this. Where, what, where really got you to that point? Yeah. Great question. So what it was is that there was, you know, as I mentioned, 18 kids at any one point in time. And one of the beautiful things, because there was bullying, there was racism, there was all sorts of things going on, even though that children's home was run pretty well. I mean, one, one guy who, who was a guy who I really idolized as well, he ended up playing pool one day in a pub and ended up getting shot in, in the head, you know, so he didn't make it. You know, so there were lots of different role models, you know, some doing the, what we might call the right thing and some doing, oh, let's just say it wasn't really necessarily the right thing to do. Or let's say that those decisions had very serious consequences, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what a decision is. It's just something that you do and it's a consequence of which will be borne out that decision that, that, that you take. So part of what I realized early on is that I had good hand-eye ball coordination, but it was also through the kids in the children's home teaching me and helping me, right? I remember one guy, Gary Lee, Gary Lee, a uh, Nigerian guy, you know, great guy, um, great-looking guy, um, had a beautiful way of speaking, had the gift of the gab, had many girlfriends, which at that time was something which I looked up to, and was a great dancer, was good at kung fu. It was like, this, this guy has got everything. You know, this guy has got everything, right? And I remember he took time out to teach me how to volley in tennis, right? So in volleying in tennis, you can either be passive or you can literally punch the ball away. And through punching the ball away, you're pushing it away from your opponent, right? And if anyone who's watching tennis, next time you look at volleying, you're volleying, you're sitting there actually punching the ball away into a corner where the opponent can't get it. For hours, he taught me how to do that. He taught me how to play football. He taught me how to go. And that's um, soccer for, for what most of your, your audience will, will understand. And you know, he taught me how to dribble, how to go around players, you know. So this hand-eye ball coordination that I already had, he helped me to maximize. And not only him, but other, yeah, but other kids in the children's zone. So then what it came down to a school, so this is as a school boy. So this is like the first 14 years of school, I was the only black kid at school. So I thought I was white, right? So my, my <laughs> values were, well, it's crazy, I know. So my, my values were more Caucasian than, than, than they were black or anything else for that matter. Uh, but that actually really helped me. Um, so, so, so yes, yeah, so as I was going in, I was playing every single sport because at school at that time, it was like, well, you play every single sport. That's what you do. And, and I realized I could excel in all of them. So it really became a choice saying, well, which one? do you really want to go deep in? Because, you know, you, you can get to a high level in all of them, but you won't break through. It became right. evident that, that I wasn't really going to break through to major success unless I decided to focus more on one than the other. And then for some reason, basketball, I just felt had more things in there. You know, it was running, it was jumping, it was pushing people around, right? It, it was, in a way, it was going around players. It was using guile and, and like being, you know, acrobatic and all this other stuff where the other sports like football didn't seem to give me that, that range of movement, that range of experience, that range of like, of doing things, right? So, so basketball was the one that I dug deep in and I went deep in. And, and I was tall from, for, for that age, I guess. I mean, this is at 15. So I played for basketball for England, for my country at the age of 15. So I was playing basketball from around about 12, 13. And, and I was, I was, you know, I'm six foot three, six foot four now around that, about 190 something around there. Um, but the thing was is that I was tall for a kid 
and and I didn't grow that much more afterwards, right? So I got my growth spurt kind of early. So it's not that I was the tallest kid, but I was one of the taller ones. I got long arms and long legs and long hands, you know, and and that stuff. So and I was always athletic. I was always quick. So so yeah. So that's the reason why I ended up choose, choosing basketball and um, to go deep in as opposed to any of the other ones. How fun! How fun! So. You had this obviously amazing story because your life has been, you know, from what most people would say, bad beginnings. You did not have the advantages of most, but you learned very quickly and very early on, if I put my mind to something, I can do this. So when did you know it was time to really share your story and give that power out to help other people? Yeah, great, 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 great question. So, it's, you know, like as I mentioned before, at school, um, you know, I, I've always been an extroverted introvert or an introverted extrovert. Depends which <laughs> way you want to say it, but it kind of amounts to the same thing. At home, um, you know, I was this black kid, uh, is pejoratively black, but then my values were Caucasian, right? <laughs> and even though I'm, there's probably not a big super close up going on here, uh, but you could say. You could say that my features aren't necessarily Caucasian, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that actually, when I was younger, that really depressed me, that upset me because I, that's what I wanted to be. So I spent much time at home in my bedroom, literally with a mirror up to my face, pulling myself apart, you know, and saying, well, I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that. This isn't good enough. This isn't that enough. This isn't that enough. And so on and so on and so on. And, and, and the interesting part, is that you know um, you know uh, you know at at home I was spiraling I was spiraling down and no one really knew because I was very quiet I would suck my two fingers and I'd sit there in a corner wouldn't say boo to a goose but but that introversion allowed me to look at people and see what they were doing and a lot of the time see um, the outcome of the decisions that they were making and somehow somewhere that was me saying well. I don't want to do that, or I want to be like that, and so on. So, so that was the introverted part. Whereas at school, um, when you're really good at sport, you're put on a pedestal. And what happens there is it's very difficult to be on that pedestal and to be very introverted. It's very difficult because you're up there, right? Hi, my name's Rob. Hi, how are you going? My name's Robert Ian Bonnick, and I'm an introvert, and I'm good at playing football. Like, it's very difficult to do. So somehow – this other guy came out, this extrovert, you know, and that guy was a guy who was good with a spotlight, who was always outgoing, who would like get along with everybody because the introverted part is about listening. And if you're a good listener, but a really good listener, then people feel comfortable around you, right? Because you're listening, you're actually paying attention. And so I became this extroverted guy that could give out lots of energy. And the introverted guy was a great listener. So that gave me the ability to be in any room and get along with anyone. And, and mm-hmm. the, 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 the Caucasian part was great because I identified with white values. Later, later, later on, I felt some of my exams. I had to go back and retake my exams. And where I went was all like it's 99% black. So I got the biggest culture shock of my life. But that was great because <laughs> <laughs> it gave me both. It gave me right. both. 
uh, and that thing about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, the reason why I brought that up is because uh, all in all, what basically happened was that um, I wanted to be Secretary General of the UN. I realized very early that my role was to be an ambassador, was to bridge the divide between black and white or green and purple, whatever the color didn't matter, right? So, so that's where all of that um, importance came out of it. And all of this became more and more important the years and years and years and years that I went on. And as I became a speaker and, and, and everything else, like it became very urgent and I began to see that this was a message that was really, really needed. And, and being, look, I haven't experienced racism for 20 years. Now, does that mean that racism doesn't exist? Of course not, racism exists. But I haven't experienced it for 20 years because it's not part of the way I see the world anymore because it's something which I've really um, come to terms with, but I have great empathy around, right? So, right. so therefore, it, it's not an issue for me anymore. So I don't, and because I'm not, I'm not bothered by it, then it doesn't come looking for me, right? And, yeah. and my energy, my energy is, isn't that. So this is all really important because after becoming a speaker, I began to realize that, that like, I have a real, I have a powerful message and that message needs to be shared. And writing a book is extremely powerful because, you know, it can't be manipulated, it can't be changed, it can't be propagandized in any way, shape, or form. So what I, whatever I write in that book and whatever any author writes in any book, that a person who's reading it gets exactly what they wanted to tell you. Exactly, mm-hmm. right? Word for word. Whether they understand you or not is a whole different story, but they get exactly what you wrote, word for word. And, and again, so mixed in becoming a speak with becoming a speaker and mixed in with the fact that I could see that it's a very important message for the world to see that was part of my mission, part of my purpose in life. And that's the reason why the urgency came very, very quick and why, why I knew it was time. Yeah. And also, sorry, l- l- lastly, I was asked twice. <laughs> right. I was asked twice. One was, uh, in Sydney, both in Sydney. Uh, love, thanks, Sydney and Australia. Appreciate it big time. But one was a friend who's a big journalist, um, cause running clubs have a massive network. And cause I'm out there with people a lot and people got to know me and got to know my story. And, um, so she said, look, Rob, I can help write your book, but you need to go and find your mother again. When you do that, I'll help you do it. And, and some part of me wasn't ready for that for whichever reason. So it never happened. And then fast forward six, seven, eight, nine years, whatever it was, I met someone else, another good friend who, who I thought was still a journalist. And she was like, Rob, you should write your book. And I was like, this is the second time something's going on here. And I was like, well, you know what? Like <laughs> the universe conspires to support you, right? In whatever you do, since you're universe or God, call it whatever you want. And, and uh, so, yeah, the, the second time when it came along, I was just like, well, I can't miss this one up. And I was like, okay, but I haven't even got a publisher. And then after she stopped laughing in my face, and when someone laughs in your face like, like, like that, it can be quite uncomfortable when they don't stop. Turns <laughs> out that she was a publisher, right? And she was a publisher for New Holland Publishers. And, and two go. weeks later, two weeks later, we had a book deal. There you go. And that's the exciting part about this, especially for those listening. If you do have, you know, a very interesting story like Rob's and you have more than one person asking for you to write a book, most likely that means you need to write a book, <laughs> you know, somehow, some way get help, um, i.e. Joyce or Rob, um, <laughs> and you can get your book written. But 
that what I love is that you know you you kept listening though too because you knew with everything that you've been through that there's a story that, that would touch someone's life and help someone out there because it, you know especially with everything and I'm sure you're well aware of everything that's going on in the U.S. and I know it goes on in other places and there's stuff going on in other places but the whole uh, racism thing that, that's going on right now in the U.S. it's very um, I don't know the right word for it. Disturbing is not the right word. Um, yeah, but, but it's, it's very confronting it, for a lot of people. It's very is, confronting. It, it, makes, it makes me sad because yeah. I, it makes me sad in the sense that, you know, America is a great nation. We have a lot to give the world. Um, but right now we're divided and we're hurting each other. And, mm. you know, when you're divided and hurting each other, it's hard. You can't give out you because you're, there's so much going on in. And so I, you know, I, I, I know I can't solve the problems <laughs> at mm. myself other than I can solve what's in my own heart, you know, yeah. any, in my own heart. And I feel like that's what you've done with your story is, you know, this is how my life <clears throat> what happened to me, but instead of taking my life and, being mad because I didn't grow up with parents and go, you know, get into drugs and whatever else you could have got into. Um, you chose to a different path. And that path is something that you, many young boys can look up to now. Hey, mm. Robert, look what he did. And he didn't have squat. Mm. You know, he didn't mm. have, he didn't have parents going, hey, Rob, you're so awesome. You should do this. You know, right? Mm. You didn't have that. I'm sure you had some people who said, hey, Rob, you ever thought about doing this? Have you ever thought about playing basketball, soccer, football, whatever? And you did all those things, but you didn't have that steady home parent situation. And a lot of boys and girls across the world are in the same situation. So mm. you have that light. And I love that you are taking that and sharing it with the world. And, you know, for those listening, maybe your story isn't as profound, you know, but you still have a story. You know, mm. our, our, our struggles always can help those behind us who want to do what we want to do, right? You know, like, I'm a writer. It hasn't been easy and roses the whole journey, you know? And mm. most writing journeys aren't. That's just part of how it works. But I can help people save them some headaches and struggles by working with them and mm. helping them along the way. So that, I love that that's what you're doing. So yeah, how? And, uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, just want to touch, I just want to touch upon one thing that you said because it's really important, right? Um, you know, so with this whole thing happening in the U.S. and around the world, um, but spotlight on the U.S. By the way, I love the U.S. Uh, I, I traveled around the U.S. Uh, three drive-away cars, Jack Kerouac on the road. There's another book for you, Jack Kerouac on on the road. This is 30 years or more, and uh, and we took three drive-away cars. If you don't know what what they are, just check out drive-away cars. It will blow your mind. And we took the first car from Chicago, flew into New York, went down to New Orleans, up again to Chicago, um, through New England, all the rest of that. 
Chicago to Seattle, all the way across the Badlands, skipping in and out of Canada along the way, Yellowstone, all the way up there to Seattle. Then that was one car, another car from Seattle, all the way down to San Diego. Again, following the coastline, dipping in, seeing some national parks along the way. And then from San Diego into Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, was, was the other car. And again, seeing some amazing country, the four corners down there. Like, I love the States. I think it's an amazing place. And, um, you know, I remember coming from England, some people in England are like, oh, you know, Americans come here and da, 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 da. It's this thing that, it's this stupid stuff that we have in our minds about cultures, right? Which is not actually the truth, but it's like uh, generalizations. Let's call it that. Right. And I remember that when I went to the States, you know, you know, I just realized that, you know what, like, Everything is kind of here, you know, like if you want snow, you got this, you got the mountains, you got the Rockies, you got skiing. If you want, you know, like tropical paradise, you got Hawaii, you got da, 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 da. like whatever you want, there's a place for it in the States, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to travel around, met some incredible people, you know, and so, so like, again, the States, I think is an amazing place. And, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, so, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, and with the whole situation that's going on now, now, I have a different view. Um, for me, it's, it's actually good. I know there's pain. I know there's people who are s- struggling. I know there are people who are losing their lives. I'm not saying that's good. But what I'm saying is that what is good is that before anything can change, you need awareness. You know, you yeah. need awareness. And right now, you have awareness, right? So, mm-hmm. so awareness is the first thing to change anything in your life. You got to have. You got to know that it's there. If you don't know that it's there, then you know, you know you're never going to change because you don't know it's there. So the first thing is awareness, which is happening right now. But the second most important thing is then intention. What do you do next? And by the way, for some people, I do not condone violence. Um, though I was a violent kid um, to process anger. I was, I was using I was using sport in a violent way. Um, but for some people, you know, violence is their way to express. I'm not condoning it, but I have to understand that that's the way that some people express that. Like um, Nelson Mandela and, and, and the whole conciliation, you know, he, I spoke before about listening. There's three types of listening. One listening is called, you know, listening to interrupt, which we all do and we all will continue to do is like, you know, yeah, yeah, but I think this, right? We're listening <laughs> to interrupt. Right? Mm-hmm. The second type of listening is like that listening to, um, listening to pretend that I'm listening to you. It's just fake listening, right? And we all know, that, right. we all know what that, we all know what that looks like. And the third type of listening is active listening. And active listening is where I'm listening to you. You have my attention. I'm listening to what you are saying and what you're not saying. It's really active. And that, if you're sat across from someone who's actively listening to you and you truly feel heard, that and reconciliation, what Nelson Mandela with South Africa, that will heal 80, 90% of people could just to be heard, but really yeah. to be heard and acknowledged, that's going to, that's going to land and that's it. But for 10% of people, it's not going to be enough because they're still so angry. So violence for some people is, is the way out. And the third step, which is really important is, and you alluded to this as well, is that what is it that I can do? It seems like such a big problem or such a big thing to deal with. What can I do? The beauty of it is, is that we can all do something. And, and that thing is, you know, man in the mirror, right? It starts with us. The change starts with us. Yeah, so, so basically what happened is that age of 12, history class, 100 years war. And what happened was that 
um, a kid in the back put his hand up and said, Miss, yes, 100 years war, yeah. It can't be the same people fighting, can it? And I, and I was like, 100 years war. And uh, it flew over my head. I didn't get it at the time. Later I did. What he was saying was that, you know, that it's what we passed on to our kids. Because mm-hmm. between the ages of zero and seven, we're in the theta brainwave state. And that theta brainwave state, basically we are a sponge and we mm-hmm. mimic our parents or the people around us that we spend most time with. And, it's, and, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? It's not, we don't listen to what our parents say. I've got two kids, two and four, and I see it every day with them. They don't necessarily listen to what you're saying. They look at what you do right. and they copy that. Now, right. if we know that, and then from the age of seven onwards, the RAS uh, is a different brainwave state comes in and we just basically, we're, we're kind of set on our tracks. If we're a train, we're kind of set on our rail, we're set on our path. And our RAS, this particular part of our brain, the reticular activating system, it pulls into our existence all of the experiences, all the evidence that prove those inner thoughts, those inner formative years to be correct. So in other words, it's all that we see. You know, right? so, and then we say, see, I told you, see, look, see, look, that's what, see, I t-, and we become righteous in that way. Right? And then it's kind of too late unless you go through a massive experience, uh, a growth experience, a learning experience, maybe a near-death experience, maybe an experience of God. And like An experience that is profound that begins to change out the way we look at the world and say, well, hang on a second, what is going on? So now what is happening right now is one of those experiences. It's like, well, what is going on? So now is the opportunity for people to say, okay, something's going on here. What can I do? It simply starts with you. So who am I being, right? Um, is there any black people that I know? You know, maybe, you know, I do. Maybe it's the guy who owns a corner shop. Maybe it's the guy who works with me. Maybe it's the guy who's doing X, Y, or Z, you know. Maybe I'm going to have a conversation with them you know, to try and get some understanding of what it's like in their world. Empathy. Right. And when I listen, I'm going to actively listen. I'm not going to listen to interrupt. I'm not going to listen just to be cool. I'm going to listen because I'm actually interested in what they've got to say. And it starts like that. So, so, and if you can't listen to someone because you don't know anybody, like there's a, there's a, there's a guy who started this thing called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And it's a podcast. And his first guy was Matthew McConaughey um, that he interviewed because they went to the same school. And that's quite interesting, right? Just listening to that, there's different things that come up. It's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think like that before. So, it's the, so actually, there's a lot that we can do no matter where we are. And look, right now it's about black lives. But it could be about anything. It, it right. really can. But, but the process is the same, right, which is awareness, intention, and then action, all right? So, so just right. wanted to just wanted to put that out there. And, and we'll go back to your questions, Joyce. Sorry, honey, but, but just well, – I, I love that though, because – in this, I mean, and I'm sure many Americans are feeling the same way. And as a white woman, I do want to understand and I do want, and I feel like I am listening. Um, but the only problem I have with is the, the anger and the unnecessary destruction and hurt of others. I mean, just this yeah. weekend, there were three shootings that little kids were shot and killed. Wow. That were just like one was in Chicago, one one was just driving, and I don't know if it was you know they were purposely shooting at the mother or what, but they mm. shot at her car, or if it was just you know a random drive by 
hear somebody driving by, I want to shoot at them kind of thing. I don't, I don't know the specifics, but two of them were shootings like that. The third one, I don't, I, I don't remember what happened, but little mm-hmm. kids were shot and killed for no reason. Yeah. Burning up businesses. I guess, I guess my take on it that I just, that I struggle to understand is I want to listen to you, but you going and destroying people's businesses doesn't make me want to listen to you. You know, if you're that kind of person that you're so angry that you think burning somebody's business and, yeah. a, and a lot of businesses that have been burned, like in Atlanta area stuff, are black owners. That's what I don't yeah. get. What are you trying yeah. to prove? <clears throat> destroying businesses and hurting people or even destroying police cars. What are you trying to prove other than you don't know how to express yourself? You know, mm. and that's that's the part that I struggle with. I want to listen. Mm. How can I do better? How can we as a community do better? How can we as a nation do better? And I know not everybody's like that, but I think there are more people like that because you said this time has come. There's an awareness. You know, mm. what happened to George Floyd, it just breaks my heart. And to watch mm. that video is just heartbreaking. And, and, mm. and I take that police officer and ring his little neck you know but unfortunately i can't go do that Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah but the the thing is now and and because like i did talk to someone who is a black man who um he wonderful man who is driven and smart and has a beautiful family um told me of an incident where he was in a mall just sitting there waiting for some friends to come back. And a police officer told him he needed to leave. He'd been sitting there too long. He wasn't doing mm. anything, you know, mm. and he did have someone come up to him and say, you know, I don't, I think what that police officer just did was wrong. And mm. I think now that I have seen this stuff, I would be more bold to say something, you know, yeah. even, even if it got me in trouble, I would be more bold and I would be like, you need to get off of the man. You need to leave him alone. Mm. He's not doing anything, you know? Uh, so I, I think that's for me, the awareness has been, I'd be more bold to, to say something. Whereas before I'd probably just sit back and be quiet. Cause I wouldn't want to get in trouble myself, you know, with the police. Wow. <laughs> wow. That, that is so powerful, Joyce. Like really, you know, like I'm kind of in tears here. Wow. Cause goose pimples. Um, you know, and that's it, you, you know, like you just, you're a walking example of the question that you just asked, you know, like within you has been a change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and as we know, unfortunately, there's extremes in everything, yeah. you know, in every kind of culture, race and all the rest of that, you know, there's always extremes and, and, and the important part is to not focus on them because, you know, unfortunately, as I said before, I don't condone violence, but for some people, that's 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 the way that they want to express right. themselves. And, and again, I don't I don't condone it, which means you know I don't I don't I don't agree with it. Um, it's hard for me to um, you, you know to say you know like you're bad and wrong, put you in prison. Uh, you know because I understand because I went for that as a kid. You know I, I understand the anger, I understand the hurt. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is that you know. Through doing what you just did, through that lady sticking up for that guy, man, it brings tears to my eyes because that's what matters, you know. Like, um, right, right, powerful, like, like, like that. 
and 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 it's a tipping point, right? So with a tipping point, you don't need everyone. You just need a certain number of people, and as a tipping point, that rolls over like a wave. That rolls over everything else. So you don't need everyone to buy into this. You mm-hmm. just need those whoever's listening to this, whoever's watching this, for those who are just there's something tapping them on the shoulder, going like, "Wow!" And you'll know if it's you because you're going to feel it the same way as you feel it, the same way as I'm feeling it right now. And you're going to know. And intuitively, right, because I believe that people are intuitively good, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that we have, um, you know, our formative years, that theta brainwave state, zero to seven, right? It's an unconscious bias that we carry around with us. So we're unconscious robots. And Mm -hmm. that's how I managed to see racism in a way that it doesn't affect me anymore. Because that's what I see. So I don't carry that energy. If someone comes against me, like they'll know it within the first few seconds, this isn't going to work with this guy. <laughs> I've got no grip because he's not reacting to me. So therefore, I've got nothing to hold on to. If I've got nothing to hold, hold on to, I just desist. I just mm-hmm. walk away or I just de-escalate because I'm, I'm not going to, if I keep prodding this bear, he's not going to bite me. There's nothing in there for me, right? And that's what I mean. Right? But it's taken me time to get to that point. I didn't, I didn't wake up thinking like that. But I, what I did wake up was thinking, right, what can I do? What one thing can I do? And, like, you know, in a, a step, you know, of, of, you know, like there's two, two, two girls, two Indonesian girls, the first two Indonesian women to climb the seven highest mountains on earth, right, called the Seven Summit Challenge including wow. Everest. And, and I'm advising them on, on, on their book right, right now. Now, but, but that journey started with one step, you mm-hmm. know? So any journey that you do, it starts with one step and you made that step already by having that conversation with, 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 that, with, with, with that guy. You know, you made that step already about recounting that experience where you saw you know, on TV this woman saying, hey, he's doing nothing here. You know, and, and already knowing, knowing your energy and everything else, when you say, I wouldn't be quiet, I know you wouldn't. I get that, I get that vibe from you. Like, you know, for, for you, this is, this is, this is right. And this isn't, I don't like just right and wrong so much because it's a matter of, of opinion. But at the end of the day, for this conversation, it's like, you know, instinctively, intuitively, as we all do, like, this is right. This is a good, this is a positive way to go. And this, this, this isn't cool. You know, so yeah. you know what? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna say something. And trust me, the minute you make that, that shift, then, you, then in life, you can have, you can be two things. You can be positive or negative with anything. That's right. it. You can't be both. <laughs> no, 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 you it. can't. Yeah. And it's, it's back to the violence thing too. The other thing I want to point out, I know a lot of the violence here isn't always, I, I think some of that is, organizations and I don't understand what Antifa is or does or whatever, but I think there's people out there doing things to make it worse than it really is because they want the tension. They want the, the um, anger to rise up and bring on more unrest. And whereas, because I, I saw a video, there was one of a lady um, she was pro- protesting peacefully, just walking through, I think it was Atlanta. Um, and these two white girls, I think one was Asian, but they're white. Um, they were paint, 
spray painting on a business, Black Lives Matter. And she's like, why are you doing that? That's not us. Why are you defacing somebody's property? And they're going to think it's us. And when I saw that, and I've just heard other things, I realized there's people out there trying to make the perspective of Black people are just all thugs and they're out there destroying things is, is what they want us to believe. And I know it's not true. I mean, I know plenty of both, you know, white and black that are wonderful people and that, you know, I would die for them, you know, I'd do whatever I needed to help them. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that, that when, as far as the protest goes, that I know that it is not all, or the, I say more riots, Protests, I don't have a problem with. Protests, need, sometimes that needs to be done. And this is probably a time it needs to be done. But the rioting, that's where I, the looting, the hurting other people, that's what I have a problem with. Because I don't feel like that's going to solve anything, but that's going to make things worse. You know, and I just, I know that's just hard for me to understand because of where I come from. And you know, my, my, my perspective is more from a spiritual perspective of, you know, if you talk to somebody and you try to come to understanding and you open that dialogue and that conversation, you're going to get much further along than if you attack someone, you know? And mm. so that's where, that's just, I guess, my philosophy. And that's where I struggle with the whole rioting part of things. Protesting, I don't have a problem with. Rioting, looting, I have a problem with. <laughs> you know, where you're mm. throwing things at cops who are trying to protect you. You know, that's where I have a problem. But obviously, I've never been black, and I can't say. You know, I can't say what I would do if I had been raised differently. If my skin color was different. You know, so mm. enough on that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for allowing that. Thank you. Yes, but it was a very timely conversation. I told him before we got on, if we went down any rabbit trails, I'm fine with that. So we just went down a long rabbit trail. That was fun. (laughs) 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 So next question is, how can sharing a powerful life story help people with their business? Because I know that that's something that you do. Um, or, you know, it could be their platform or their business, however you want to put it, but it helps people sharing their powerful stories. Um, how, like people that you work with, how, what has it done for them? Mm, great question. So what's coming up for me over the last week, two weeks, a little bit more, probably three weeks, is, you know, is that as people, right, people, inspire people yes and you know and and i've been looking into that going a bit deeper into that and that's one thing which i love about books because you know books podcasts um documentaries interviews you know it's when you see somebody you know like you and i go into a room we talk to 100 people we've got the same three points in our message and of that hundred people, when you go on, it's like, yeah, Joyce, I get you, girl. You know, maybe that's a portion of the room. I go in there and it's like, yeah, he's a good guy, but I don't get him. Or some other portion of the room is like, yeah, I get you, Rob. 
It's the same three points, right? So, so, but, but, but people respond to us differently based on a whole bunch of different things. But the beautiful thing is, is that, is that people inspire people. When you read a book, when you read a life story and you see that they went through challenge, they went through this that you did, you know, and you can, you look at that book and it's like, that's me. That's my situation. You know, that's what I'm going through right now. And this book can help me. Wow. And you get to the end of it and you get those one or two insights and you're like, wow. And if you're in that space, can change the way you look at your life, can change the way you look at the world, which includes your business. You know, it's powerful. So, so as a speaker, as an author, as a writer, as an interviewer, as, you know, we have an incredible ability to share people's stories. We have an incredible ability to be able to tease, to pull out, to reveal you know, those one or two or three defining moments in their lives that change them forever. And then not only can we do that, but then people can see it a bit like you're cooking so like a beautiful lasagna or something, you know, and they get to eat it too. And it's like, whoa, that tastes good. I'm inspired to make my own lasagna, right? So, so, so <laughs> I have no idea why that came into my head, but what the heck? Just run with it. Um, you run with it. Right. So, so, so that's, that's what we can do. Um, you know, where, where you and I, uh, people like us have the opportunity to bring people's stories into a book and put that book out to the, to the, to the world in whichever form that takes. And so, so which effects has it had on people? Dramatic. You know, I, I remember when I first read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, Robert, Robert Kiyosaki, this concept of a rich dad and a poor dad. And the idea of, you know, going to go to school, getting good grades and, you know, going to that, you know, I get a pension or, or, or 401k uh, for, for you guys in the States. And that's going to sustain me for the rest of my life. Right. Okay. Coming to understanding of, well, that's not really the way that's going to be. That's not really what's in our future anymore. You know, what's in our future is, you know, having the ability to be able to, you know, what is our balance sheet and income statement? You know, what does that look like? You know, like, like, what can I do? financially to make movements and changes in my life i can take more responsibility and actually create income you know what is it the fact that you know if i can have you know an asset an asset being defined as something that puts money in my pocket what if i can i've got expenses every week what if i can if i can create or buy um you know enough assets which pay down all those weekly expenses that i have an asset is something that I don't work for. Once it's set up, once it's done, it just delivers me income, like a, like a, like a rental property. You know, I buy that. I, I, I go in with a bunch of other people. We all put some money in together. You make a rental property and the money comes in and that equals our, our expenses. So I don't any longer have to work, you know, so, so like this is the sort of stuff, um, that I'm dealing with that I'm doing. Uh, with the people that I'm coaching, with the people, the clients that, that I have. And, you know, so many, many businesses, you know, um, business owners, you know, which, which I speak to, you know, like, like they're making changes in their business that will sustain them for the rest of their life, them and their family, right? But the fundamental root is the same. It's people inspire people. And some people pay more attention to, to some people because that's just what they can relate to. And, right. uh, and but so long as that message goes out there and they make and they're inspired to make those changes, then it creates different um, insights in their lives, which changes their lives literally within a couple of months. 
Yes. And that's what I tell people too when I'm talking to them that, you know, you may have similar content or or a similar message you want to share to someone else, as someone else, but you have your take on it and your view and your story. And you may be able to relate to people that the other person who wrote about the same thing may not be relating to. Because for whatever reason, you know, it could be personality, it could be the way they write, it could be the way they look, you know, who knows, whatever. <laughs> There's a reason yeah. why <clears throat> we, we connect with different people for different reasons. And so it's always, you know, even though there, I forgot the statistic now, there's like um, how many books are published a year? It's like it's over a million, I think. It's, it's yeah. a lot. <laughs> Whatever it is, I can't think of a stat. It's a huge number. I yeah. can't think of that right now. But anyways, it is a huge number. And so that, um, but there's, I mean, there's people always buying books. There's people always wanting to know That's more. Right. People want to know, and like you said, people inspire people. That is the key. Is you if you have you know a message, a, a method of you know something that you want to share with people that will help them. Most likely, there will be a market for it. You know, and get help and make sure there's a market for it. But most likely, there's a market for it. And if you have a powerful story, that's even better. You know, it doesn't always have to be a rags to riches kind of thing. It could be, you know, I struggled with an addiction or I struggled in my marriage or I struggled with my spiritual life or I struggled with my money. You know, there's all kinds of things that you can do with, or you struggle with all of them. And and how you came to a better place because, you know, none of us, it's ever all perfect at all the time. And so that story can be shared. So do you have some key components to create a powerful story that you help give your clients to make sure they have in their book? Definitely. I mean, there's three or four questions which are key for me. You know, one is understanding your why. You know, so mm-hmm. why do I want to write a book? You know, and, and I've tapped into, you know, what, what, what mine is. I feel just my kids walking by. Hello, kids. And my, my beautiful girl, Medina. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's understanding your why. Um, so, so for me, as I mentioned before, my my why comes from comes from that background. You know, comes from the fact that I've always wanted to be an ambassador, wanted to bridge the divide. You know, um, so that motivated and inspired me like you wouldn't believe. So my my like why is really powerful, and also for the other kids in the children's home who didn't make it, I feel like they gave me the best of them. You know, Gary showed, showed me how to, how to volley and to dribble. Stephen taught me something. Raymond taught me something. Ivan taught me something. Leslie, Gail, you know, Tony, Kate, they all taught me something. You know, Lee Burke, you know, like they all taught me something. So I'm duty bound, right, to, to take what they taught me and to bring it to other people, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's in service too. So the, the why is the first one. The, the, and these are, in, in, these are not necessarily in order. But, but why is a very important one. Another one is, um, you know, like, what is your intention with the book? What is your intention with, mm-hmm. with, with the book? So my intention was, well, I want to share this message with a lot of people. I want to share this message with a lot of people. So my intention is I want to get this out to as many people as I can, you know? So that was my intention. And who am I writing for? You know, who am I writing for? 
And it was like, well, okay, who am I writing for? And I broke it down. I was like, I'm writing for people, you know, who, who, who want to look at themselves, who realize that there's something that might need to be uncovered here. There's something that needs to be peeled off, a layer that I'm not seeing. Why do I think the way that I think? You know, how do I, how do I want to get the best out of myself? How do I want to get the best out of my life? You know, how do I want to improve myself? You know, I'm looking for those people. I'm looking for those people who are, who are like furiously looking to grow, you know. So for me, mastery is how I live my life. I don't go for perfection. I go for mastery. So what that means is that, you know, and I was watching a documentary with uh, Kobe Bryant um, the, the other day, actually, great basketball player, obviously. And he was saying, you know, like, incredible guy. Like, I, I really didn't, cause I'm a Jordan guy from way back, and I didn't give Kobe enough respect. I give him a whole, a whole lot more respect now. But, um, but he went to Italy early on to play basketball and he came back to the States and realized that he was behind, you know, like he was like just about reaching the backboard, jumping up, reaching the backboard. And these guys are doing windmill dunks. They're doing reverse dunks. And he was like, I can't even just touch background to touch the backboard. So he knew that he was behind. So what he said was, you know what? I'm behind, but if I improve, Every day, Monday, I, I'm better than I, than I was yesterday. Tuesday, I'm better than I was on Monday. Wednesday, I'm better than I was on Tuesday. Thursday, I'm better than I was on Wednesday. And so on and so on and so on. And if I commit to that, not for weeks, not for months, but for years, right. if I commit to that for years, I know that I can excel. And that's what he did. So every day, he looked to get better. Every day. And guess what? We know what happened next. You know, his work ethic, even Phil Jackson, who coached Michael, you know, says, you know what? You know, like the guy who's got the biggest work ethic I've ever seen is Kobe Bryant. You know, mm-hmm. work ethic, you know. And, and with Kobe, it was like saying, well, look, I improve every day. I improve every day. And, 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 and you know what? That's all I need to do. And as I go through that, I begin to love the process too. So I begin yeah. to love the process. So the work becomes not like work because you're, you're loving the process. And what he realized was, was that he's emotional state. So he realized that there'll be days where he shoots the game winning shot and he's going to feel amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then two or three days later, you'll take the same shot and miss. Oh, and he feel <laughs> awful. Right. But he knows that I am not my emotions. Right? I am not my body. I am not my mind. Then if I'm not those things, then what am I? I'm something a whole lot more powerful than that. Right? So, so if you understand the process, which is that, then the sky is really the limit. And it starts from wherever you are now. So for me, mm-hmm. I, in the morning, I get, I get up and do like some push-ups, right? When I roll out of bed, I, I put, do push-ups and I go meditate. I start to be able to do a number. Now I can do 50 or 60, but that started without a break. But that started from starting where I was today. If that is one, if that is not one, but that's on my knees with my, with my hands and doing one, that's where I start. You know? And, I, I, you know, and we just, we plateau, expand. So expand, that's a steep learning curve. And then we plateau. Plateau is good because your body is imbibing what that feels like and you're grounding it into your awareness, right? You're embodying it. Right. And then as you go along on this plateau, then you have another growth spurt. Woo. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you go plateau, which is great. 
right? right. Cause then you plateau and you get comfortable with that new sense of whatever it is. I get comfortable with a hundred dollars in my pocket, you know, right. then $200, then $300, then $400, or I get comfortable doing 10 pushups, you know, mm-hmm. and then great. Now I get comfortable with 15 or 11. Next, next couple of days, I'm at that plateau. Then I do third 12, you know, so this is, this is it. So, so those three things, um, is yeah. Now, why am I writing the book? What is the intention and who am I writing for? Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a few more, but, but they're the three key three. Cause if you're able to, to answer those or start to think about those, then, then what going through the rest of the process, then you're able to be really supported, you know, by some, uh, by a powerful, uh, inspiring, motivating force. Yeah. And that's, that's what I like too, um, is when you have, know your intention and who you're writing for, you have that focus and your why, all of that goes together, like you said. Um, and then when you talk about improving yourself, you know, the same thing happens with writing. The more you write, the better you get. The more you edit yourself and write and edit yourself and write and work with a coach or an editor and write, then the better you'll become. And it, like you said, it's that improving yourself and becoming a master at it. And, you know, you can do that with any skill. Just like you're talking about from exercising to finances to writing to whatever your job may be. Um, all of that goes that way. And I love that. So the key components are know your why, what is your intention with your book, and who am I writing for, and how do I improve myself or mastery. And one, mm. I'll add one more that I share with my clients is what do you want them to think, feel, or do after they read the book beautiful which is which is kind of goes along with intention but you also that gives you that practical application because you know you can write a great story but if you get to the end of the book and you're like well that was good but there's no application to it then you just spent time reading a story you know (laughs) and so Mm. you want your reader to have some way to apply it to their life. And that's what I like about that. Well, tell us a little bit about your writing time. Do you have a consistent writing time or you write daily or what are some things that work for you and some that maybe didn't? Cool. Okay. Um, Before I ask that question, I just want to quickly say something. Um, So a lot of people, when they're trying something new and, uh, you know, they, they fail, right? I fail. I fail forwards, actually. I fail forwards like a baby learning to walk. Boom. Get up, walk, bang. Get up, walk, bang. Get up, walk, stay up, stay up, stay up, stay up. Bang. And then get up, I'm up, right? We fail forwards. So so, so with this thing about mastery, um, 67%, right? Why is that number important? Because we often think that if I set out to do something, if I don't do it 100% of the time, I'm not going to do it. And I, and I fall off the rails and I'm done. Whereas mm-hmm. all you need to do is to do it 67% of the time. So, for example, you know, if I say I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock, um, you know, every morning, right, and let's say I choose 10 days, I'm going to get up at 5 in the morning for 10 days straight. Mm-hmm. So 67% means that if you, if you manage to get up 
six, let's say seven times out of 10, the habit will still be there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do 100%. Right. Yes, it's nice to do 100%, but you don't have to. 67%, that is the critical mass. That's the tipping point that you need to achieve to create a habit, right? Mm-hmm. So, so don't go hard on yourself and underachieve, meaning go really, really, really small. Most of the time we've got these delusions of grandeur. It's like, I'm going to go from, I'm going to go from 160 pounds to, you know, a hundred pounds in a week. <laughs> I'm going to do it. And it's like, it's like, you're crazy. You know, and you watch some guy who said, I did it in two days. You know, I'm going to do it in two days. Right. You, you know, Okay, some people may do it in two days, but for most people, it's not going to be that. So underachieve. Take, you know, take that long view. Kobe Bryant, I know I'm going to be doing this for years. Take a, I'm not saying it's going to take years, but take a longer view. Do it over, you know, like two or three months, not two days. You mm-hmm. know, so under, underperform your way to success. And then what happens is that all those things in your body, those patterns, which, which you're going against, when you do it at, at, at a way that's underachieving, it's like you fly under the radar. So mm-hmm. you fly under the radar because all we're doing is creating a habit. So it's not the length of time, it's the habit that is important. So if you mm-hmm. underachieve, then you fly under the radar of that, that consciousness that you have or say, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, right. that's too much. So you just go much, much less and underachieve your way there and you're fine that over a longer period of time, you'll get to where is what you wanted to get to. So that, that, that was that. that was that. But answering your question, so writing time. So I do this thing, um, emotional writing technique, um, but but what I find is that, well, you know, so my first book, Soul Survivor, 80, 90% of it was written on a mobile phone, <laughs> right? <laughs> on a, on a mo- mo- mobile phone, uh, which was uh, from the front seat of a minibus, when we were first exploring Bali. So in the back, my kids are going, ah, going nuts. And thank you for my partner, Marina. Um, <laughs> and I was at the front smashing away on a, on a, with my thumbs, right, on a, on a mobile phone. And I would write for 45 minutes to an hour. And I knew that I could write a thousand words. My manuscript was 50,000 words. So I followed this technique, which I do. And, uh, and basically I knew that I could sit at each sitting, I could write a thousand words. And because I was in complete alignment with what I was writing emotionally, um, I knew what I was able to write that thousand words in, in, in one hour. So then what I did was I said, you know what? 50,000 words is 50 hours work. 50 hours work. How fast do I want to go? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go fast. So I knew that five days a week we'd be traveling around Bali. So I thought, you know what? I'll do, I'll do an hour a day for five days a week. Right. And that's what I did. So I knew it would take me 10 weeks. And that's what it took me. It took me exactly 10 weeks. Right. And, uh, and that's because I got myself in that state to write every morning and we'd leave in the morning. So I knew that I, I, I knew I would do it. So, so, and when, when I speak to people, when I talk to people, you know, when I advise people, it's always about, you know, like find that time because something needs to be given. Something needs to be sacrificed. Either you're going to get up an hour earlier or you're going to go to bed an hour later. Or you're going to find some time during the day where you're going to, where you're going to carve out that hour. 
And after you've done your structuring, so structure book first and then, and then write, not write and structure at the same time. So when you know what you're writing and you know what to do, then, then it's allotting the time aside. And, and, and what I'm advising people is that people know that time of the day that they're able to, they can steal the hour in the morning or they can steal the hour in the evening or they can steal the hour during, during the day. But find that consistent time, you know, and find that place. So even though mine was on the mobile phone, I was consistently in the front passenger seat of that bus. So I had my consistent spot where my mind, body, and soul, and spirit would all come together, and now I'm going to be there, boom, at a certain time, boom, five days a week, and I'm going to, and I'm going to write for an hour, and that's it, you know? And so that frequency, that regularity, was what my body needed to be able to settle and to be able to let the best parts of me come out onto the page. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, what I want to add to people, to what you're saying, because some people think, you know, especially those that maybe haven't written yet or haven't written much, an hour, a thousand words, wow. You know, it's like, really, you can write a thousand words faster than you think once you do it. Um, and you just, and remember, this is the, something that I tell all my clients, you do not want to write and edit at the same time. And I'm sure if you were doing that, you were not editing while you write. Just vomit on the page and get it out there, and then you go back and make it pretty. Um, But you you did some prep work, is what it sounded like, too, because you kind of knew where you were going to go with it um, before you started writing, sound like, right? Uh, With your book? Yes. yeah, and, and that's and I teach something called the right plan that helps people do that. And every client I take through it, they're like, "Oh my gosh, this makes it so much easier to write." Because in your head, you have this blob of ideas, but you but most mm. people are like, "I don't know how to organize this into a book that's cohesive that somebody will want to read." You know, I've got this concept, I know what I want to write about but I don't know how to get it focused. And that's what I teach my clients is how to get focused. And then it, mm. it, it does. you can write like that for that hour every day. And the other thing, you know, that I tell people like one lady that's a client of mine, she's only had 15 minutes and she did it on her phone. 15 minutes. She, as soon as she opened her eyes, she'd grab her phone and she'd type. And she did her whole, like just her vomit on the page that way. Then she, now she's going back and organizing it and yes. editing it, making it pretty, you know. And so it can be done. You just got to figure out what works for you. For me, that would drive me nuts to type on the phone. I want a keyboard. I even have a keyboard for my iPad because my iPad's like a laptop. I can't stand to, I, I mean, I can type on my phone really fast, but I couldn't stand to like do a book on there. You know, I can send a message mm. or an email but I'm not going to write a book on my phone. But if you can, and that works for you, more power to you. Go for it. Um, but I love that. I love that you, you, you set intention there. And that's the other thing I tell people all the time is you set intention and then you stuck to it. And if you, if you break it down, that that's something I teach people. It's if you break it down, it's so much easier to do that. Uh, last question. What words of advice and encouragement do you have for writers who want um, 
I realize I have this question wrong. But words, <laughs> what words of advice and encouragement do you have for writers who may be struggling to start their book? Ooh, great one. Great one. Okay. Um, there's usually a few reasons why people struggle, you know, to start stuff, you know. And a lot of this is about looking in the mirror, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you see, here's the beautiful thing. In life, you can be doing things for yourself or you can be doing things for others. There's no right or wrong with this. It's just a place to sit, a place to stand. Most of the time, you know, when we write a book, you know, if we know what our why is and through going through that process, then pretty quickly we'll realize that it's actually not about us. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually about other people, you know. And, and so we're being in service of other people. So in other words, you know, when we take ourselves out of the way, flow happens. Definitely. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so most of the time, because we're stuck in our own head saying, oh, I've got to just me, 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 me. A good way to do this, right, is, okay, I do this little exercise. Before I'm speaking at any engagement as a speaker, uh, before I coach anybody, um, before I'm doing any workshops, and it goes something like this. It's not religious, but you can make it that. It's no problem. Um, so what I do is I take three deep breaths, like into my body, breathe it out. Three deep breaths, okay? Mm-hmm. Being in nature is always best, but if you're not, that's okay, right? And then once I do that three breaths and I close my eyes and I just sit. If I'm in nature, I can hear birds. If I'm in a, in a city, I'll hear the sounds of the city, you know? And then what I imagine is white light coming down from above and coming down throughout my whole body, like, like bathing myself in white light, right? And then what I do is I say this little prayer. And my prayer is this. I say something like, you know, please, God, you know, please help me to be of best value to Joyce. Or please, God, please help me to be of best value to Joyce and whoever's watching this. Or please, God, please help me to be of best value to the world. Or please, God, um, please help me to be of best value to whoever's going to be watching this, right? So it's a prayer. And, mm-hmm. and what it does is it takes you out of the picture because you're the one who's holding you back, yeah. right? And it allows God or whatever you believe to speak through you. Mm-hmm. And when you get in that state, you won't be stopped anymore because you realize it's no longer about you. Mm-hmm. It's about you giving a service to someone else, you know, like – Here's another example, right? So, so like, when I was in Sydney, I was boxing with these kids, these street kids, these Aboriginal kids. Aboriginals are the, the patron saints of Australia. They are the Indigenous people of Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, they reminded me a lot about me when I was growing up in the kids' home, right? The ones who are like the black sheep, literally, of the family. So I would do this boxing class with them. And, I, and it would start at 6 a.m., which meant I had to get up at 5 a.m. Okay. Now, so the alarm went off at 5 a.m. Now, 
if I'm going boxing for myself, the alarm goes off at 5 a.m., then I'm thinking like, ah, I had a a hard night last night. I was out (laughs) drinking or I was out having fun or whatever it was. And you know what? I don't feel like going boxing this morning. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll do the evening class instead. So I can let my mind persuade me to not get out of bed right, and do something else and make it up later and do a double session tomorrow. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Whether you boxed or not is irrelevant, but you know what I'm saying here. But, oh, yeah. but if I'm on purpose, meaning there's 30 kids, Aboriginal kids, who are there at 6 a.m. waiting for me to put my ass <laughs> into the space and teach them boxing, guess what happens? I'm no longer thinking about me anymore. I am being in service of other people. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get my butt out of bed at 5 a.m. and I'm going to get there by 6 because other people are relying on me. This is the power of being in service of others. So if you get to that spot in your book and you're onto your purpose, you're onto your why am I doing this, and you realize that it's actually not for you, it's for other people. Sure, you can gain something by it. You can gain money. You can gain a bigger platform. You can reach more people. No problem. I get it. That's great. But what you soon realize is that you're there for other people. When you tap into that, you'll stop, you'll stop all this rubbish of delaying and you'll make action and you'll do it now. And you can underperform, underachieve your way there. You can do it bit by bit. You can call Joyce. You can get onto a program, right? And she'll guide you through all, all the things that you need to do. There you go. I love that. So and what I want to encourage people, because I love your questions, is to, this is something, a great way to start your book, is free write your answers to the key components, knowing your why. What is your why? What is your intention for the book? Who are you writing for? And then just how do you want to improve yourself, You know, whether it's with writing or with something else or with something that you want to improve in the book? Free write your answers to that. You know, take 15 minutes a day and think those through and you're going to be well on your way to starting your book because you'll find little what I call nuggets of gold in there when you start writing that out. Don't you think, Rob, that that's a great way to release that story? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, yeah, it's a great way to do it. It, it, And, uh, there's one, one other, one other, one other little thing which I throw in there as well is that, you know, again, depends on what kind of book you want to write, but, um, but, you know, but, uh, you know, if you're, in, if you're in a business niche, you know, and you're, you're a business guy or businesswoman and, you know, like a great way of saying, well, in my industry, which is X industry, you know, like what are the 10 biggest problems that people face? The 10 biggest problems that people face or 15 biggest problems that people face in your industry. And, and, and then what are the answers to those problems? And those answers, that can be your book. Mm-hmm. Very well for me, yes. Well, Rob, it has been wonderful So having you here today. I appreciate it. And I am sure we'll hear more from you in the future. But um, definitely check out his book, Soul Survivor. And we will uh, see you next time on the next episode. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Right Hour. 
Our goal is to help you achieve your writing dreams. You are one step closer to write your book. Learn how to get the book out of your head with the four steps we teach our clients. Sign up for the free email series at therightcoach.biz. The link is in the show notes. The four steps help you clarify your focus, create and organize your content, and complete your book. We share tips on the writing process, and you can download the writing planner to track your progress. Don't let fear and overwhelm keep you from writing your book. It's time to write your book.